have y'all heard of preppers? Survivalists? Right? There's this group of people who they want to be ready for any and every situation. And so they really rely on just knowledge and having all these uh, self-defense skills and having food stocked up and first aid equipment and all this stuff. So that if anything happens, well, they're ready for it. They're ready if there's some kind of societal breakdown. They're ready for a natural disaster. Some people, they'd hate this so far that they have bunkers and it's just full of food and medical supplies and other equipment just in case, well, everything just falls apart. And so when they enter different uh, restaurants or hotels and everything, they, they scope the scene out so they know where the nearest exit is or what to do in case a bad guy comes. They're just ready for everything. The whole idea is being self-reliant. And I found it interesting. Did you know that the, the roots of all this uh, kind of trace back to the Cold War era? It was actually the, the, uh, the Mormon cult, and they would encourage their members in those days to make sure that you have a year's worth of food supply just in case there's a nuclear attack or something. Uh, now, today, the Mormons encourage their members to have three months of food stored up. Well, as we continue our empowered series through the Gospel of Mark, we'll see that Jesus was always ready. Always ready, no, not necessarily for a cataclysmic societal breakdown or uh, some kind of natural disaster or something, but he was always ready for people, always ready to meet people, to minister to their needs, to share hope and goodness and love. And so we'll see that this morning. We'll see that the empowered life is not so much a life of self-preservation, but a life of self-sacrifice. Let's go ahead, check it out. It's Mark chapter 2, the whole chapter, all 28 verses. Mark chapter 2. Mark writes, When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof from above him. And when they had made an opening, they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the the, the Pharisees were fasting. 
And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as, he, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, last week, you may remember, we left off. Jesus had just healed this leper, okay? And he gave strict instructions to this man. He said, hey, don't, don't tell anybody. I want you to go right to the priest. Offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded. Well, the leper couldn't do that, could he? Now, he was just so full of joy, so full of excitement and having this encounter with Jesus that he goes and he's just telling everybody. And it seems as if everybody listens, so much so that Jesus can't actually get back into the town. He's just bombarded with people. So he goes and he has to live for a period of time in just desolate places out in like the wilderness areas. And what happens? People, even in those areas, they still go out to meet him. In droves, they're coming to Jesus. Well, some time has passed, and now Jesus is back in the city. He's in Capernaum, and word gets out, Jesus is at the house. That wasn't a house he owned. We we know that it's a borrowed home. But people are coming, again, in droves, and they're coming to hear Jesus preach. Don't miss that. It's not that Jesus is doing these miracles in the house. They're coming to hear Jesus teach and preach, and this is the scene. Where all these people, they're coming in into the house. So much so, people, they can't even, like, creak their neck over just to try to get a peek of Jesus' teaching. That They can't even get close enough just to hear him teaching. There's just so many people all wanting to be with Jesus. It raises an interesting question, doesn't it? Is this the type of Jesus that we introduce people to? This Jesus who's just so magnetic, so contagious that people just can't help but get near him. It doesn't matter if he's way off in the wilderness and desolate places, they'll go to him. It doesn't matter if he's just a house full of people and you're just kind of piled on top of one another. People, they still just want to hear him. Is this the Jesus that we present to people? Or do we present a Jesus where, hey, you got to get all dressed up, you got to look right, you got to cross your religious T's and dot your religious I's, go through all just the customs and traditions and everything, and then you can meet Jesus, then you can be acceptable to be in his presence. It's interesting, that's not the Jesus that we find in the scriptures. We, we find a Jesus for common, ordinary people. It doesn't matter how they look. It doesn't matter how they're dressed. It, it just doesn't matter that he welcomes everyone. And, you know, in those days, the, the custom of the day was early in the morning, as soon as you wake up, you just open your door. And the door just kind of poured out right into the street. And by having an open door, you're basically letting all your neighbors know, letting the whole town know, hey, 
come on over. Stop by. Come in. Stay as long as you want. Just visit for a while. Whenever you feel like going, you can go. And that was the norm. Uh, if you wanted strict privacy for whatever reason, then you'd close your door. You get the idea with Jesus? His door was probably always open, don't you bet? I bet he probably never closed the door. It was always open. Anybody want to come? Come on in. Let's, let's, let's just sit down and let's talk. And so here he is. The door is open and the people are piling in. There's so many. They, they, they can't even get to the door to kind of lean in to look. And he's simply teaching. He's preaching the word to them. This is why Jesus came. This is what Mark said. He came to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now's the time to repent so you'd recognize the Messiah. So this is what he's doing. He's teaching. Is he going to heal? Sure. But the healing just authenticates his message. That's, that's why he heals. And so here comes the perfect opportunity right in the middle of his Bible study, a perfect opportunity for healing to take place to authenticate his message. Friends come and they bring this paralytic friend of theirs and they can't get to the door. I mean, people are piled. They can't even get near the door. And so in their desperation, they begin plotting, how are we going to get our friend to Jesus? And somehow they make it up on the roof. And the way houses and roofs were built in those days, you'd have these beams that were spread three to six feet apart. And then you'd have uh, limestone, uh, slabs of limestone. And they were about three by three feet. And you'd place those on the beams. And then above that, just for insulation purposes, you'd put some, some dirt and things, and then some sod or a garden on top of that. And so these friends, they, they get on top of this grass roof, and they're digging through in their desperation. They tear through the limestone, and they begin to lower their friend. And he's probably on this just mat that's made of sticks and straw, and they've got ropes and everything, and they're lowering him down. And Mark lets us know who's present in that room. There's teachers of the law there. And you know, the way teachers of the law thought of like really, really sick people in those days who had something like paralysis was, hey, if you're really, really sick, that means that you're a really, really bad sinner. There must have been something that you've done or something that your parents done. Man, you've got some really ugly skeletons in your past that this has happened to you. And so you can imagine as this guy's being lowered down, just the looks that he's getting, and he's completely helpless. Maybe his arm dangles off the side of the mat. Maybe his face falls awkwardly to the side. Maybe there's some drool streaming down his cheek. I mean, his body's weak. It's emaciated. But his mind is still sharp. And he couldn't feel much, but I bet he could feel the stares of all his accusers just looking at him, wondering, what did you do? What did your parents do? What's happened that you've ended up like this. I bet he could feel the embarrassment of the moment, just being looked at like a spectacle, and here he is being lowered down into the middle of this mass of people. And then Jesus sees him. And you see the first thing Jesus says to him? Son. It's the first thing he says. Son. It's a word for little child. It's what, it's what a father would call his boy. You're my son. Oh, everybody's looking at you. Don't worry about all that. You're mine. You're my son. I, I care about you. You don't have to fear what they're thinking. You don't have to fear what, what, what they think and, and what they would want to do and how they would handle this situation. You're my boy. You're mine. You're my son. And then he says, your, friend, your, your sins are forgiven. 
Your sins are forgiven. You know, the Pharisees, they don't say anything, but I don't imagine they had to, do you? I bet their faces and their body language said it all. And Jesus, just to point out what I'm sure everyone in the room could see, he calls them out on what their hearts are saying. Say, oh, you think it's easy just to say your sins are forgiven. It is somewhat of an easy thing to say because how are you going to prove that? How are you going to prove that this man's sins have just been forgiven? He says, okay. Yeah, it's, it's easy to say that, but it's not so easy to say, get up, take your mat, go home. That's not so easy to say because if he doesn't just get up, take his mat, and go home, then it's really clear, hey, this guy's a liar. He's a fraud. He's a charlatan. So he says the harder thing to this man. Go ahead, take your mat, get up, go home. And by saying the harder thing, he proves that he can do that which is actually harder because it's one thing to heal someone. Very difficult to heal paralysis, but it is even harder to forgive sin. And Jesus, by speaking this hard thing, proves that he can do the even greater thing, that he can forgive this man's sin. There's such a winsomeness about Jesus, isn't there? That in the middle of his study, in the middle of his teaching, he could stop it all. He could recognize the pain of this man in the face of his accusers. He could be so personal and so intimate with him as to call him son. He can restore him. And he can, he can even speak to those who are, who are in their hearts even condemning him. Jesus does all that. This is the winsome, good, patient, loving Jesus that we find in the scriptures. And that does beg the question, is this the Jesus that we present to people? Or do we introduce people to the winsome, compassionate Jesus that we find in the Bible? That's the challenge, really, that we introduce people to this Jesus. Because when you meet him, you can't help but glorify God. That's what happens, right? The whole room, they, they see all this, and they're glorifying God. They're praising God. We've never seen anything like this. This is incredible. This is the goodness of Jesus, a Jesus who's always ready to teach, the door is always open, always come in. He's always ready to meet whatever need it is. He's always ready. Well, there's another day. Jesus, he's, he's walking beside the sea again. And he sees Matthew. Mark tells us that his given name is actually Levi. He's a tax collector. Well, no one liked tax collectors in those days because, well... They tax almost everything. They would tax the fish you caught. They would tax your boat. They'd tax your house. They'd tax your crops. Anything and everything, they would tax it. Caesar said, this is all good. As long as he gets his share of the cut, you can just keep the rest. And so this was Matthew. And Matthew was a public tax collector. There were two types of tax collectors. There were private tax collectors who hired out other people basically to do the dirty work so they could just kind of stay back and in kind of a position of anonymity so you wouldn't really know that he's actually a tax collector kind of betraying his fellow Jews. And then there were the guys who, well, they actually sat at the tax collector's booth and taxed you. And you would look at them with disdain because you knew that they had sold themselves over to Rome in order to betray really their fellow citizens and tax you to death and skim the profits for themselves. And so no one wanted to be near a tax collector. Nobody wanted to be near a guy like this. 
And this was Matthew. Mark reminds us that his given name was Levi. You know, Levi's a priestly name. Perhaps when he was born, his parents had such big dreams for him. You're going to grow up. You're going to be a great priest. It's going to be so good. Big dreams for Levi. But those dreams were dashed, weren't they? Now Levi, he's, he's the black sheep of the family. He's not invited to the family get-togethers anymore. He's betrayed his family. He's betrayed his neighborhood. He's betrayed his countrymen. He doesn't even go by Levi anymore. He uses the Greek name, the Roman name, Matthew. Yeah, you can imagine nobody wanted anything to do with Matthew. Nobody except Jesus. And as Jesus is walking beside the sea, he sees Matthew and he says, follow me, be my disciple. (laughs) No one chooses a tax collector. Do you just realize the hilarity of this? Nobody wants that guy on your team. He's the one who's betrayed everybody. You want to make a name as a rabbi or something? You do not pick a tax collector. Everybody hates tax collectors. Nobody wants anything to do with them. And Jesus says, be my disciple. Follow me. And Matthew does. He leaves the tax collector's booth and he just goes and he follows Jesus. And then in the span of a punctuation mark, Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house. There's a party going on. And it's the Pharisees that let us know what kind of party this is because they're looking and they're asking Jesus' other disciples, how is it that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners? It does beg the question, doesn't it? How did that party even come about? Just imagine with me for a moment. I mean, we don't know all the details, but maybe as Matthew gets up from his tax collector's booth and he's walking away, that maybe there's another tax collector friend there. And he just yells out, hey, Matthew, where are you going? Are you sick? Maybe Matthew kind of nods. He's trying to get away as fast as he can because, I mean, his friends are not the type of friends that you really want to hang out with. He is almost probably embarrassed to want to introduce these friends to Jesus. I mean, these are the type of people that your parents told you to watch out for. You know, the people with salty language and Mardi Gras morals. I mean, you don't want anything to do with them. But these are all the friends he's got. He's betrayed everybody else. This, this is who he's with. And, you know, his friends, well, they probably wouldn't like preachers a whole lot. They probably like preachers the way that sheep like butchers, you know. But this is who he's got. And so Matthew, he tries to give a nod, maybe walk away. And maybe it was Jesus who nudged Matthew. Hey, Matthew, I'd like to meet your friends. Matthew shoots back, no, you don't want to meet my friends. No, you you don't know these guys. You don't know these girls, man, with the things they do. You you don't want to meet them. And Jesus says, no, Matthew, I didn't come to quarantine you. I came to empower you. We don't know exactly what happened. We don't know exactly what led up to that party, but we can imagine a little bit. Whatever happened, Jesus is there. He's at the party. He's eating with the tax collectors and sinners. And what's more, he seems completely comfortable, doesn't he? Completely at ease, just having a good time getting to know Matthew's friends, all the outcasts of society. Who is it that has the hard time? It's the religious police. Those who are looking down their nose with this thin-lipped piety. How can you eat with these type of people? What what kind of rabbi are you? What what kind of religious person are you? You're with the filth of society. 
brings up another question for us, doesn't it? If you were at that party, where would you be more comfortable? Would you be more comfortable with the religious country club people? Thinking, hey, we've got everything together. We're good. I can't believe these people are here. I mean, who are we eating? What kind of party is this? Or would you be more comfortable with Jesus and the tax collectors and the sinners and just eating with the outcasts of society and ministering to them? How you answer that question says an awful lot about your relationship with Jesus. It says an awful lot if, you, if, if you're in true relationship with him and you've come and you, and you realize, man, my job, he empowers me to reach lost people, not just to hang around people who think they're righteous. And so this is what Jesus said. I, I didn't come for those who think they're righteous to those who don't think they need help. I came for the sick. I came for the lost. As we look back on this section of scripture, we see a lot of people who, they make much of Jesus, sometimes in really small, almost insignificant ways. There was someone who must have loaned Jesus the house so that Jesus could be there and teach. He didn't own a house. There was uh, the friends of the paralytic who carry their friend and go through all kinds of acts of desperation to make sure their friend gets to Jesus. There was Levi who throws the party so that Jesus can befriend all of his outcasts. Time after time after time, you see people almost behind the scenes a little bit who are making much of Jesus. In all these acts, they all reveal something about the empowered life. That when we make much of Jesus, Jesus works. He works through us. He works in us when we make much of him. Jesus, he would later promise that I'm the one who's going to build my church. It's not on you. It's not on me. We don't build the church. Jesus says, I do. How does he do it? When we make much of him. Live the empowered life by making much of Jesus. And the thing that you see over and over and over again throughout the scriptures, especially the gospels, is that ministry is kind of fun. Making much of Jesus, that, that's like contagious. There's a joy to it all. And sometimes you miss that. And you can go to churches and it's, it's almost like, do you even enjoy this Jesus? Because if you really know him, you would. He's, he's so welcoming. He's so good. He's so patient. He's so kind. That if you know this Jesus, oh, you can't help but love him. Unless you're a religious elitist like the Pharisees. They can't help but hate them. And they're raising all these other questions and people are wondering, okay, is it the Pharisees who are right or is it Jesus who is right? Where should we go? And so it all comes to a head because here comes Jesus and his disciples and they're eating. They're having a good time. They're celebrating. And the people are looking and they're seeing this. And then they're also seeing the disciples of the Pharisees. And they're seeing the disciples of John. And they're saying well, these guys aren't fasting, or these guys are fasting, and your guys aren't. What's up with that? How come your disciples aren't conforming to the status quo? This seems a little wrong, Jesus. Like, explain this one to us. And Jesus answers by giving this fascinating explanation. Can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? And the answer, no, of course not. When you're hanging out with the groom, what are you doing? You're celebrating. You're feasting. 
According to the Mosaic law, the whole structure of everything, it was only required that you fasted one day a year on the Day of Atonement. That was the only required day for fasting. But the Pharisees and their religious tradition, they added all this uh, rigidity to their religious system. And so they said, hey, if you really want to be a good Jew, if you really want to demonstrate that you love God, it's not just one day a year. It's going to be two days a week. Every Monday and every Thursday, you fast. And so they would demonstrate how they were fasting. They put white powder on their faces. They'd walk around and just kind of mope around and, and act kind of weak and just kind of proclaim to everyone, look how, look how religious we are. Look how good we are. Look how faithful we are. And it was somewhat impressive, really. I mean, to see people go through all these motions, it's quite a sacrifice. Two days a week, not to eat, is somewhat impressive. It would almost be like today if someone just told you and just kind of made sure and kept reminding you, hey, I get up at 4 a.m. every day to pray. Hey, did I tell you? 4 a.m. every day I pray. And there is an impressiveness to that. I mean, it's uh, whatever. But there's a difference between piety and intimacy. Religious piety, religious rigidness just says, look how good I am. Look at all these religious hoops that I jump through. Aren't I good? Intimacy says, look how good Jesus is. Oh, you have to want more of him. He's so good. Oh, in desperation, I'll fast to try to know him better. In desperation, I'll pray. It doesn't matter what time. Because there's a goodness to him. The, the finger is not on you. It's always toward Jesus with intimacy. With piety, it goes the other way. It's look at me. Look at the works I do. Look how I live. And this is the Pharisees. They're, they're making sure everybody can tell. Look at the powder on my face. Look how I mope around on these days. Can't you tell I'm good? Can't you tell I'm religious? And Jesus, it's not about that. And so he, he gives them this fascinating illustration in those days, when, when you would get married, um, the couple, they would not go on a honeymoon like we do today. In fact, it was the groom, he would get together with all his buddies, and for a week, uh, they would just feast and celebrate. It almost sounds odd to us, right? You first get married, and then the time that you spend that week is not with your new bride, but it's with all your buddies. Yeah, it's, hey, I'm, re I'm ready for my bride at this point, right? But that's not how it was back in those days. It was a day you're working hard. It's a lot of life of toil and struggle and all this. And so when a friend gets married, you stop everything and you celebrate and you feast. And so Jesus is telling everybody, hey, I'm the groom. I'm the groom. Let's feast. Christianity, now's the time to feast. Now's the time to be excited because I'm here. There's no time to mope around and just put dust on our faces and act how hard everything. No, now's the time to be joyful because I am present. You know, this is a totally new revelation for the Pharisees, for the people. And the Pharisees, they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle it because their system was so rigid. It was all this pious religious hoops. And Jesus was breaking all that. And they, they, they just couldn't handle it. And so Jesus, he gives two more additional thoughts just to kind of clarify this message even further and to prove like why he's doing what he's doing. And the first thing he says is, hey, if you have an old garment and there's a hole in it, there's some kind of tear in it and you're trying to fix it and you get a piece of cloth, well, you're not going to put a new piece of unshrunk cloth on that garment. Why? First time you wash it, 
that new piece of fabric, it shrinks up and then you make the hole even worse. Everybody knows this. Jesus is just appealing to cultural norms. He's pointing out what everybody knows. You wouldn't do that. And then he gives them another illustration. Okay, you've got this new wine. What you're not going to do with new wine is to pour it into old wineskins. Why? Well, old wineskins, they're, they're brittle. They've lost their elasticity. And new wine, when you put it into a wineskin before its age, as it goes through the aging process, it gives off these gases. It actually expands. And so what would happen? Well, it would burst the skin and all the wine would just be poured out. And therefore, you lose the wine and the skins. You just made a bigger problem for yourself. And so Jesus is pointing out this fact. I've not come to kind of patch up an old system. I'm not come to take the Mosaic law and just kind of make it a little better and kind of work with it and massage it a little bit. And then, oh, all right, now our system's really good. I fixed it. He said, I'm not, I'm not, I've not come to do that. I've come to do something completely new. Completely new. And the Pharisees, they can't handle that. Because it's not so much that they love God. It's that they love their system. They love their routines. They love their rituals. They love their traditions. And so they can't handle the message of Jesus. This gets picked up again as Jesus is walking on the Sabbath. And he, and he has his disciples with him. And his disciples start picking some heads of grain and eating them. Well, it's not so much they were just picking heads of grain as they're walking along. That was culture. You were allowed to do that in those days. If you're hungry and you go by a field, there's, there's a section of the field that was permissible for you just to pick and eat. That was fine. The issue was they were doing this on the Sabbath. And again, the Pharisees, they'd added all these additional rules. This is not Mosaic law that you couldn't do this. No, this is Pharisaical law that's added to the Mosaic law. He says, no, you can't do this. This is a burden. This is a strain to yourself. This is dishonoring God. You, you can't pick a head of grain. And so there he's saying, Jesus, how are you allowing your disciples to do this? In other words, what kind of rabbi are you? What kind of teacher are you? This is, this is so wrong. <laughs> and I love the brilliance of Jesus here because he turns it around on them. And he says, hey, you remember David? And of course they remember David. David's their hero, the great King David, the greatest king Israel's ever had. Yes, they remember David. So you know what David did, don't you? When he and his friends were hungry, he went to the place that only priests were allowed to go. He ate the bread that was considered holy, that no one could touch. He ate that bread and he gave it to his friends to eat. And for the Pharisees, this is blasphemy. I mean, this is just terrible. But since David did it, they can't say anything. They just have to keep their mouths shut because it was David. See, Jesus, he turns it around and, and he proves to them, hey, I'm doing something new. This, this isn't made. All these systems, all these structures, it's not, they're given to protect and to provide. But you were not made for the structures. The structures were made to help you. And you've missed it all because you've become a slave to them. And so he's proving this to them. And he's proving that he's come to do something new. You know, there's two ways that you could get rid of a law, that you could do away with it. And Jesus, he's proving that he's doing away with the Mosaic law. It's almost like an acorn, right? If you have an acorn, there's two ways to get rid of it. 
one, you just kind of smash it, right? And you beat it to pieces, and then no more acorn, right? You just got like dust particles or whatever. The other way to get rid of an acorn is you plant it in the ground, and then no more acorn, now you have a tree, because it, it grows. Jesus, that's how he's getting rid of the Mosaic law. He's not just smashing it to pieces and saying, oh, we're done with this. No, he's fulfilling it. And in its place comes, comes something so much better, something new, something beautiful. And so today, we're no longer under the Mosaic law. We're under the law of Christ, this new system that he's given us, a system on grace and goodness. The Pharisees, they missed all that because they were blinded by their, their systems, their traditions, their religious piety, and it blinded them that Jesus was doing something new. You know, it is the thing about Christianity. Christianity doesn't live for the past. It lives for the future. Jesus is about making things new, making you and I new. He'll one day make all of creation new. And so we live for the future. Christianity doesn't live for the past. Christianity lives for the future. We're not a people who just sit back and reminisce about the good old days. Oh man, back then everything was so good. No, we're people who are enthusiastically optimistic about what God is doing in the future because we know that the best is yet to come. And we are so overjoyed and so thrilled and so thankful that God would choose us that he would handpick us to make disciples in this generation, in this culture. That he's picked you for this. And there's a goodness to that. There's a winsomeness to that. There's an excitement for that. And the thing is, when you live for the past, you're never really ready, are you? You're just always back glorying in your yesterdays. But when you live for the future, you're always ready because the best is yet to come. And this is Jesus. Jesus is always ready. You see it this morning? He's, he's always ready to teach. There's an open house that he can stay in? Come on, anybody's welcome. I'm gonna teach the word. Somebody needs healing? Somebody has a need? Bring the needy person in. Doesn't matter how they get here, cut a hole in the roof, lower them in, he's always ready. There's outcasts, people who don't want nothing, nobody wants anything to do with them, people like Levi and his friends. Jesus is ready for them too. And the critics who come looking down their noses at Jesus and asking him all these questions, well, he's ready for them too. Jesus is always ready. And it tells us this, that he's always ready for you. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you got some fears, some hurts, some pains. Maybe you think, I, I don't know if I could be any good for the kingdom of God. I don't know why God would want me, why Jesus would want me. Jesus is ready for you too. You see it in the scriptures, Jesus is always ready. And he's not ready to quarantine you off and say, okay, Levi, don't hang out with those people anymore. No, we're putting you now into this secure little group here where everything's gonna be safe. He doesn't do that. He's not ready to quarantine you. He's ready to empower you empower you to go back to your friends, to talk with them, to love them, to serve them, to disciple them. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are an always ready God. God, that your son, Jesus Christ, that he was ready for all of our hurts, 
for all of our struggles, for all of our fear, for all of our sin, and that he could do something about it. And God, we thank you that you now empower us to be ready for the people that we meet so that we can make much of you. Help us to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.